So we'll see how uh, how well you guys do at paying attention. There's going to be some things that look a little bit different this morning. Okay, Wait, this, we've we've changed up the system that we're using for the presentation, so things are a little bit different. Um, we're going to be finishing chapter 17 this morning. Uh, as you get there, kind of just to, to to finish out the chapter, finish out this section, uh, just a, a recap of everything that's happened so far. And chapter 16, uh, the Pharisees were demanding signs from Jesus. They were asking him to prove, excuse me, prove that he was who he said he was. Uh, to which he responded with, how many more signs do I need to do? And then uh, he warns the disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's going to come to play a little bit later on here, is that particular warning. Uh, and of course, he was talking about their teaching. He was talking about their misunderstanding of God's Word and how that could corrupt and defile the ministry that he was sending them forward on. Uh, then they moved on to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made the confession of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately following on the heels of that, Jesus told the disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection, where Peter then put his foot in his mouth and denied that that was going to happen. And... Uh, to close out chapter 16, Jesus made sure that they understood that the path that he is setting them on is one that could very well cost them their life. And then as we moved into chapter 17, Jesus took Peter and James and John up the mountain for a time of prayer, and his glory burst through in the transfiguration, and, and they could see him in who he really was. Uh, they heard the audible voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. I think that part was specifically for Peter and for us. Um, they returned from the mountain. They're met by the other disciples. Uh, this man who had the Son who was afflicted and suffering from seizures and, and uh, being possessed or oppressed by an evil spirit. And that's the point at which Jesus tells the disciples that their faith needs to be in the one who does the work, not in their own abilities. And uh, the only thing that we know right now as far as geographic location for uh, the stuff that's going on is they're somewhere north of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's all we know, all right? Um, but, but we get an idea of the travels, where they've been, and, and the things that Jesus has been talking about. This is really the turning point in his ministry where he starts focusing on his approach to Jerusalem. And so, we are now at chapter 17, starting in verse 22. So I'm going to ask you all to stand with me for God's Word this morning. Matthew 17, 22, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? 
He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And then he said, From others. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into your word, there are times where we may wonder what this has to do with us. Father, I pray that we would understand that all of Jesus' teaching was designed to, to teach us, A, who he was, and B, who we are meant to be in him. Father, I pray this morning that we would listen to his word, that we would understand what is said and that we would apply it to our lives in order to bring glory to you and through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So, Matthew tells us that Jesus and the disciples were gathering together in Galilee. I don't know if that means that time had passed and they left the the town at the foot of the mountain where the Father had the Son. I don't know. It's not really important. But as they come back together in Galilee, Jesus kind of uh, hits the rewind button for a minute and reminds them of his soon-coming fate. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. Um, The disciples were upset. Matthew is uh, apparently um, proficient at understatement. Um, you remember back in chapter 16, I already mentioned, Jesus told them that this was what, we, what was going to happen. Peter jumped in and said, uh-uh, that's not what's going to happen. That's not how this works. You're the Christ. Well, if you take his denial, which Jesus characterized as being the things of man as opposed to the things of God, if you take Peter's denial and you take this statement right here at the end of verse 23 that they were greatly distressed it becomes obvious that at least for the majority of the people in Israel at this point in time there had not been a connection made between the Messiah and the suffering servant as spelled out in the book of Isaiah If you look at Isaiah's prophecy, there are all kinds of things that talk about the suffering servant is going to do this. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die. He's going to suffer. That's why he's called the suffering servant. All of these things that that are, are prophesied to take place in the book of Isaiah. And most of the Jews had not connected the dots between that person and the Messiah. Now, I can understand that a little bit because, um, as with all of the prophecy in Scripture, there are two components to biblical prophecy. There is the here and now part where Isaiah says something is going to come to pass and it refers to something that is happening in their current situation. And then 
there are the not yet aspects of the prophecy. So there are things that are going to happen that are immediate, and then there are things that are going to happen that the prophecy applies to both. The prophecy applies to both aspects, here and now, and then later on down the road. It is entirely possible that the people just didn't understand that the suffering servant was also identified with the Messiah. When we consider that Isaiah's prophecies were roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ, we consider the idea that in that 500-year period, you had the return from the exile, uh, the the return that the, the Persians authorized, where the people came back to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the temple. And then you had the conquering of the whole known world by Alexander the Great. And then you had the dissolution of his uh, kingdom and the split between the four generals and the conflict there. And then that coalesced into the conflict between the, uh, the two predominant armies, right? The, the uh, Ptolemies and the other group, I can't remember who they were. Um, it'll come to me probably at 2 o'clock in the morning because that's when that kind of stuff hits. But all of this conflict that took place in Palestine, the Jews had focused on, we need to be God's kingdom. The Romans came in and set up their rule, and the Romans are oppressing us, and they're taxing us, and they won't let us do certain things, and, and all of this stuff that takes place. Messiah had turned into the idea of the conquering king. Why would you equate the suffering servant with the conquering king? Those two pictures just don't line up, right? And so when the disciples hear Jesus saying that he's going to be turned over and he's going to suffer and he's going to die, they're upset. But notice that they don't argue with him here at this point. They seem kind of resigned that like, okay, if he's, if he's really got a death wish, or, or maybe he's just misunderstanding something, but we're not going to fight with him. We're not going to argue with him. Their spirit seems to be broken at this point. Um, it's funny, though, that, that the first part of the statement that he's going to be killed is such a gut punch that, that knot in the pit of the stomach, that it's almost like they miss the promise at the end of the statement. The Son of Man is going to be turned over to the hands of men. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And at that point, the disciples go, they miss the part where he says, and he's going to be raised on the third day. They don't listen to that. They don't hear that part. How come? Remember where I said that Jesus warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? One of the pillars of the Sadducees' school of teaching was that they denied the supernatural. They denied the idea of resurrection. They denied the miraculous. And so... If 
the disciples had ever listened to or heard some of the teaching of the Sadducees, they may have had that little nagging doubt in their mind that when Jesus said he was going to be tortured and and killed and then raised on the third day, but what if resurrection doesn't happen? What if there really isn't the miraculous and what we've seen is just tricks? That little crack of skepticism is something that we have to guard against. Jesus said that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was something to be avoided. We have to look for those places where we've allowed bad teaching to infiltrate our thinking and we need to get rid of it because that can cause us to miss crucial parts of the gospel message. So now we move on to the the main part of the passage, the second part, the, the part that takes the most space, the part that takes the most reading, and this is only recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Luke doesn't write about this, Mark doesn't write about this. Only Matthew writes about this. We don't know why. Take a guess, what was Matthew's occupation before he decided to follow Jesus? He was a tax collector. So it might be that this had some importance in his mind because of the subject. And it's good that this happens right about the time where W-2s are starting to come out and tax statements are coming out and and everybody's ready to go file their taxes and make sure they pay up what they owe the government for the year, right? Yeah. So, uh, important to note, these tax collectors are not government tax collectors. These particular people are tax collectors for the temple. They're responsible for collecting the temple tax. Um, uh, We're in Capernaum, which is Peter, Andrew, James, and John's hometown. Not far from Nazareth, not far from uh, the, the, well, it's right on the Sea of Galilee. And these men are, they're not the hated tax collectors. They're the tax collectors that everybody's okay with. I know it's hard for us to think that we're that anybody's okay with a tax collector, but they're okay with these guys. The temple tax that we're talking about was actually part of the Mosaic Law. Uh, in Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 through 16, which are going to pop up on the screen here in a second, we have this law given for the temple tax. Each one who's numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. That helps, right? Because you all have a gera measure in your in your cupboard. Um, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich won't give more and the poor won't give less than half the shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So, what we have here is a tax for each person who is numbered in the census whenever the census occurs. Now, the only people that were counted in the census, if you look back in the book of Numbers, if you look through uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, where there's another one, if you look through in 
Second uh, Samuel, if you look through in First uh, Kings, and I believe it also happens in Second Kings, when a census is taken, the only people that are counted are men over the age of 20 because they were the ones who were eligible to serve in a military capacity. They were the heads of their households. They were the heads of their tribes, the leaders of their families. For each person counted in the census, on the Day of Atonement, which happened every year, they were responsible to give a half a shekel as an offering for the service of the tabernacle. Now, I don't know what the service of the tabernacle means because the, the stuff that was that actually made up the tabernacle was donated from the people. And the priests and the Levites who attended the tabernacle, all of the other offerings that were supposed to take place were specifically to provide for the priests and the Levites. So I don't know if this meant that, that down the road as they were traveling, if repairs were needed, if they needed to buy an extra uh, chunk of, of wood to make a pole for one of the tent poles. I don't know what it means by the service of the tabernacle. But that's what this offering is for. It is to support the operation of the house of worship. After the tabernacle's gone, that moves to the temple. So this is a regular offering that is supposed to take place every year. When Jesus goes to the temple and he walks into the court of the Gentiles, what does he find? Money changers, right? Those money changers, one of their duties is to convert people's currency into the sanctuary shekel because that was a specific weight. And if we know something about the Jewish people, we know that if God said it had to weigh this much, then they were going to give this much and not a penny more and not a penny less. In fact, God says it very clearly. The rich don't pay more. The poor don't pay less. Everybody who's counted in the census gives a half a shekel, period. You're done. So the money changers that Jesus would have issue with were there so that when somebody came from, oh, I don't know, Asia Minor, and they happened to be a Jew, and they were paying their temple tax on the Day of Atonement, they had Galatian money, or they had Ephesian money, or they had Greek money. Well, that's not a shekel. So the money changers had to be able to take that Greek money and convert it over to temple measure shekels so that the offering could be paid. There's nothing wrong with this, except they were charging exorbitant fees to make the change. Now, have any of you ever traveled overseas where you have to cash out American money for currency from another country? Right? Now, if you ever need to do that with Canadian money, you don't have to go to Canada you can stop anywhere from, I don't know, Pennsylvania north and, and just ask for change at any gas station. You'll probably get half of it in Canadian money. Okay? But, but when you do that, the places where you trade the money out often charge a service fee. Right? So if it's a 20 to 1, 
I give them one U.S. dollar, they give me 20 of their currency, I'll probably only get 19 back because of that service fee. That's perfectly understandable in the world that we live in. The problem is we're talking about the temple. We're talking about the worship place. We're talking about people who are seeking to be obedient to God. So they bring with them enough money to convert that into a half a shekel. And when the money changers are done, they only have a third of a shekel. That's a problem, right? Because the rich aren't supposed to pay more and the poor aren't supposed to pay less. Well, what if I'm middle, you know, middle income, I'm, I'm in the middle class, and I brought just enough, but because of the money changers, I can't pay the temple tax. Right? Now I'm in violation of God's law. So that's what made Jesus upset. That's why he went to the money changers' tables and he started flipping them. Because they were hindering people from worshiping God. So these two men, back to Matthew, these, these men, they don't go to Jesus. They go to one of the disciples. This happened before when, when the Pharisees sent a messenger to, to talk. And how come your master doesn't do the ritual hand washing before eating? How come your master doesn't do this? They send messengers to the disciples rather than going to Jesus with the question. They go to Peter and they ask this question. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now, I understand this is an English translation in modern English grammatical structure. So I went to my uh, one of my study tools that I, that I had from, from going through seminary is a parallel Greek New Testament. So it actually has the words in Greek in the, in the order that they were written. And it says, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? <laughs> That's exactly how the sentence is structured. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter answered, yes. Well, that helps. And I'm telling you, this is straight from the Greek text. And Peter said, Yes. Yes, what? Yes, Jesus does pay the tax. Yes, Jesus does not pay the tax. That's not a question that a yes or no is sufficient for. But that's the only answer that we have recorded in Scripture. We may never know what his answer meant. But by the actions that Jesus takes at the end of the passage, it's probably safe to assume that he had at least not paid the tax for that year. Whether he ever paid it or not, I don't know. So Peter comes into the house. So now I can, Peter's got this thought rolling around in his head. Jesus, I just had the weirdest conversation with these tax collectors that, you know, the, the, those two guys that collect the temple tax. They stopped me as I was coming into the house and they asked if you pay the temple tax or not. So I told them, yes. Jesus didn't have to wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> but before Peter can get this out of his head and speak it, Jesus stops him and says, Peter, in your opinion, when the kings of the earth collect a tax or a toll, do they collect it from their own family or do they collect it from everybody else? 
stop. Jesus, I, I had, I was thinking about something else. Now you're asking me a question about taxes. When the kings of the earth collect their taxes, do they take it from their family or do they take it from everybody else? Now we have to do a little bit of context here because we know that at least on paper in the United States, every American citizen is required to follow the tax laws that are established by Congress unless you're rich enough to pay accountants to hide your money. Or same thing. Even the family of the president and the family members of Congress are legally obligated to follow those laws. Now, we also know that in the real world that people who have the know-how, people who have the money, can go seek out lawyers and and accountants that will show them how to legally-ish sidestep some of those laws and shelter their money. Now, before we get all sanctimonious, which one of us turns down any tax money that comes back to us from the government that we did not pay in first? Not a chance, right? Not a chance. If if I pay in $500 and Uncle Sam says your refund is 1000 do I send him a check for 500 bucks? No. I don't do it on principle because I'm a government employee. I'm paying taxes on money that was originally taxed. It's just not right. I pay my own salary. In Jesus' day, in most of human history, it was expected that government officials would not tax the people that were in their family. That makes sense, right? Now, that's the best part of being a father. Because as my kids were growing up, and they would go get a, a snack, you know, get the Oreo cookies out or or whatever, and they start walking through the house with that pile of two or three Oreo cookies in their hand, I would take out a daddy tax. Mine. I'd gladly tax the people in my family. Right? Because I bought them in the first place. (laughs) Peter knew this. Jesus knew this. Everybody knew this. That government officials would shelter their families from the duty of paying taxes. And so Peter said that when the kings take out taxes from people, they don't tax their own family, they tax others. Okay, that makes sense. So, in the context of the temple, who is the king? God the Father. Jesus is his son. Jesus is his son in whom he is well pleased. So it's not even like that son that we don't talk about, right? You know, there's the black sheep of the family that you keep in a different pasture. Jesus is the favored son. Jesus is the only son. And so, if God were one of the kings of the earth, and he were levying a tax, who would be exempt? Jesus would. So Jesus has answered the question, does your master not pay the temple tax? He has answered the question, I don't have to. I'm not obligated to. I'm not responsible to. Because I am the son of the king. This is all about his identity 
as God's son. Now, Jesus isn't just God's son. He's also fully man. Born to a Jewish woman. A member of the people of Israel. Therefore, he is accountable to the law. It's another one of those cases where he had to do something that legitimately he could have said, no, I'm not doing that. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Matthew, back to chapter 4, I believe it is, might be 5, where John is baptizing people and he's calling the people of Israel to repent. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? And people are lined up at the Jordan River by, by the droves. Jesus comes out. And Jesus comes up to John. And John says, Uh, no. You need to baptize me for the repentance from my sins. And what does Jesus say? No, John. In order for all righteousness to be fulfilled, it has to be this way. And so Jesus is baptized for the repentance from sin that he never committed. But as part of national Israel, he was required to follow that law, that command by the prophet John. Here, Jesus legitimately does not have to pay the temple tax. If you go back again to, to that <laughs> to the end of that passage from Exodus, right? The last verse, verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to what? Make atonement for your lives. What did Jesus have to atone for? Nothing. Nothing. He did not need payment for his sin. But he did it. He's talking to Peter, and he makes the statement in verse 27, However, not to give offense to them, to the tax collectors, I will pay the tax. And then he pulls out his change purse and he gives Peter a shekel, right? No, because he's Jesus. <laughs> right. Now, before we get to the actual process of arriving at the shekel, that statement there, to not give offense to them, is a very, very, very important principle. In the book of Romans, in chapter 14, in the uh, first letter to the Corinthians, in chapters 8 through 10, Paul beats on this principle. I mean, he pounds the drum on this principle. He just keeps thumping and thumping and thumping and thumping. In Acts chapter 16, in Acts chapter 21, Paul lived this principle. 
and that is changing my behavior so as to not offend somebody else. All right, we talked about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school. I personally am a very big fan of bacon cheeseburgers. But if I'm going to share the gospel with somebody who does not eat pork or who abstains from eating dairy with their meat, I'm not going to go with my bacon cheeseburger and sit down to lunch with them. If I'm sharing with a Jewish person, even if they are a Jewish believer, if they are a Messianic Jew, I am not going to invite them over for a ham dinner. Because that's just not right. Okay? I'm not likely to go sit down at a steakhouse with them and order surf and turf because they don't eat shellfish. It's not that I believe shellfish is wrong. It's because it's not worth breaking fellowship with them. And so Jesus says, in order to not give offense, Peter says, in order to not give offense, I'm going to become all things to all people. So we have to be careful when we deal with other people, not because it is a leash on our freedom, but because we are accountable for what we cause their conscience to do. Because if Jesus were to say, well, I'm God's son and I don't have to pay the temple tax, those tax collectors are going to be offended and they're going to tell everybody up and down the street up and down across Capernaum and across Galilee. And, and by the way, these tax collectors were responsible for gathering the tax from the people and taking it to Jerusalem. So they would take it to Jerusalem and then tell everybody at the temple, you know, Jesus doesn't pay this. How many of the followers of Jesus are going to say, well, if Jesus doesn't pay the temple tax, I'm not going to pay the temple tax. Right? So Jesus understands this. Paul understood this. One of the principles of ministry is that we have to bridge the gap and make it easier to share the gospel with people. We have to meet people where they are in order to share the gospel with them. We cannot expect somebody to be a mature Christian the minute we meet them. So again, because he's Jesus, he doesn't just hand him a shekel and say, take this to the guys outside. He tells Peter to go fishing. And now that's not, un that's not unusual for Peter. Peter is a fisherman, right? But Peter is a commercial fisherman. So when Peter goes fishing, it's in a boat with a net. And he goes out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and he tosses the net outside of the boat. And then he pulls the net up into the boat and it's got fish in it. Jesus says, go fishing with a hook. Now, I have heard people, and, and I think this is, this is probably bad preaching, but it's funny to think about. The reason Jesus said, go with a hook and a line, was because he knew that if Peter had went and pulled up a net full of fish, they'd all had shekels in their mouth. And that wasn't the point of what he was trying to do. I think that's bad preaching. Take a rod, 
take a hook and a line, and the first fish you catch, if you open its mouth, there's going to be a shekel inside of it. Take that to the temple tax collectors for both of us, for you and for me. So Jesus didn't just meet the obligation that he was required, but he also paid the price for Peter. Huh. It's almost like he was kind of a uh, substitutionary offering for Peter's obligation, like he is for us. Jesus spent a lot of time walking and talking with the disciples to help them to understand who he was. Twice in his life, in his ministry, God spoke audibly to those who were with him. This is my son. Listen to him. Jesus asked the question in Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? It is important for us to remember who Jesus is. When we think about his death, and I know we just, we just, just got done celebrating Christmas. This is a problem I have with the church calendar, particularly with the placement of Christmas, right? We just get done celebrating Christmas, and we are this close to celebrating Good Friday, right? And I've seen it on Facebook a couple of times. This year, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is April 1st. So if you're in the practice of hiding eggs for the kids, go tell them to find eggs that you didn't hide. <laughs> it's April Fool's Day. <laughs> right? But when we think about when we think about the death of Christ, we think about the resurrection of Christ, we have to remember he was not just a man. Yes, he died. He died a horrible death. And the reason that he was raised was because he did not deserve it. It was a debt he did not have to pay. It was a debt that he paid on behalf of other people. Just like that half a shekel that Peter pulled up with the fish. Jesus provided a means to pay that obligation that Peter didn't have to do anything for but to receive that fish. That's all he had to do. Peter didn't put the money in the fish. Peter didn't have to put the money on the hook. All Peter had to do was to take the money out of the fish's mouth. Jesus provided it, just like he provides atonement for you and me. That's the gospel message that we need to take to a lost world. Every one of us is obligated to pay for our sin debt. We may not have a temple tax. And and trust me, what goes into this plate is not a tax for the operation of the temple. Um, It does pay the bills to keep the lights on. And and I know you all like to have heat when it's cold outside. Yes? If not, I, I I can arrange to keep the furnace off. We can do that. Right? No? Okay. Um, and, and I know that if you use the bathroom, you like to have toilet paper and that sort of stuff, so I'm not telling you quit paying tithes or, or making offerings. Don't No. Right? But understand, 
that all that is doing is enabling the ministry that we are called to do, which is to share Jesus' gift with other people.